Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Eddie Simonian. I'll be your moderator for today's program called Age of Coexistence. We also welcome our listening and internet audiences and invite everyone to visit us online at www.commonwealthclub.org. Now it's my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker, Dr. Usama Magdisi, who is a visiting professor at UC Berkeley and author of Age of Coexistence, The Ecumenical Frame and Making of the Modern Arab World. Dr. Magdisi was born in Washington, D.C. and spent his early years in Lebanon. He earned his Ph.D. at Princeton University. Would you please welcome Dr. Usama Magdisi? There. Thank you. Um, it's always a, it's always nice. Uh, thank you, Eddie. It's always nice to be introduced by saying that I spent my early years in Lebanon. I grew up in Lebanon, um, but yes, they are my. <laughs> as I get older, they are my earlier years. Um, but thank you very much, everyone, for coming out here, and thank you to the Commonwealth Club for hosting me, and thank you, Eddie, for your you know for your introduction and. Uh, to my landlords from Berkeley, thank you so much for coming, and my cousin from Berkeley as well, thank you also for, for showing up. So I was asked to, to basically summarize a book, which uh, I, it took me about six years to write this book, um, more or less. I started in 2012 um, when I was in Berlin on a fellowship, and I um, finished it more or less in 2018. And then, you know, it takes about a year uh, of production and edits. It's an academic book <coughs> published by the University of California Press. And so I'll try, uh, and this was actually written, although um, um, Celia very generously said that the book was, is easy to read. Um, I'll take that as a compliment, but it's, it's also a book that was directed at and for um, my my colleagues in academia, so it is an it is an academic um, book, but they call it a crossover, like a crossover SUV. It's a crossover <laughs> book that's meant to ideally appeal to people who care about the topic of coexistence. and And I'd like to start just by saying a few words. I'll try to limit my comments to fifteen minutes, and then we can have twenty minutes and have a discussion. Um, let me let me say why I wrote this book, beginning in Berlin. Um, I had been approached by the editor um, of California Press, my editor there, uh, who had asked me to sort of write a follow-up on my very first book, which was published in 2000, called The Culture of Sectarianism. And he had asked me to write a more popular book or a book that could reach a more general audience about the problem of sectarianism that most people who think about the Middle East have encountered or heard about or think about, because the coverage of the Middle East, um, especially since the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, has emphasized sectarian violence, uh, sectarianism, sectarian mobilizations, and so on and so forth. And so I was asked to write a more general book about the topic. But as I, as I began thinking and writing this more general book, I ended up realizing that, in fact, the, the issue with the Middle East is, is that there's been too much emphasis on sectarian violence to the point where the term sectarianism, 
which which uh, we could think of as the politicization of religious difference, the term sectarianism and the thinking of the Middle East as a place of violence, or a place of authoritarianism, or a place of dashed hopes, or a place of um, despair, actually has obscured and covered up and uh, rendered invisible, in fact, a, a very long uh, and, and uh, uh, important and, for me, evocative and extremely moving history of coexistence. A history of coexistence that we can think of in one of two ways. We could think of it as a history that goes back a long time, insofar as the Middle East and the Islamic world and Islamic societies and states have long had a vibrant history of coexistence defined simply as the living together of Muslims, Christians, and Jews in very different ways uh, across centuries, from really the beginning of Islam all the way until the modern period. So that's one way of thinking of coexistence. But that, that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, I keep that in mind. Um, it's something that we should always bear in mind because the Middle East, the Arab world, Arab history is a profoundly rich history. And it's sort of a tragedy that it gets, and it's not just a tragedy, it's actually incredibly misleading that the emphasis is always on what is happening today in terms of politics and uh, sectarian violence and mobilizations because people have lost sight of the fact that this is a part of the world that is um, profoundly, um, profoundly um, mixed, religiously mixed, that there is a long history of coexistence that is not one thing that has changed over time, but that the reality is quite unlike uh, uh, parts of Europe and certainly unlike the United States in the 19th century, um, the, the history of mixture between Muslim, Christians, and Jews is a profound aspect of this history. And it's something we should always bear in mind and keep in mind without romanticizing this history. So my, the, what I try to say in the book and what I try to argue as I was grappling with this, was thinking about how to write a critical history of coexistence related to the Arab world. In other words, a history that on the one hand takes into account what is most precious and beautiful and important about this part of the world, and on the other hand, not to romanticize this history and make it one thing, because as a scholar, as a, as a historian, you know, my job ultimately is, is, to, is to look for complexity and tell stories with complexity and not reduce things into just a simple, untenable account. I need to justify what I write, at least to myself and to my readers. And so I wanted to write a critical history of coexistence that shifts the story away from sectarianism and towards this other thing in the modern period. And by modern, I mean 19th century until now. Uh, and this other story is the history of anti-sectarianism. In other words, there's a tradition in the Arab world in particular, and the Arab East specifically, and that's what I focus on. I don't talk about North Africa. I don't talk about the Gulf region. I'm talking about the Mashriq, which means the Arab East, which is the regions that were part of the Ottoman Empire and that constitute eventually the states of Lebanon, Syria, the Mandate of Palestine, and eventually the State of Israel, the Palestinian territories, of course, today, um, Jordan, and we could think of Egypt and Iraq as the 
as the um, the outer geographical um, limits of this region. So that it's the Arab East, not not North Africa, not the Persian Gulf or the Arab Gulf region. And so what I what I try to do in the book is try to show how this this extraordinary history of of modern coexistence. In other words, a history. Yeah, a history that grapples with or tries to figure out or tries to narrate or chart how it is that this older history of coexistence, which was not about equality, beginning in the 19th century has to grapple with what every complex modern polity in the world had to grapple with, which is how does, um, how does a diverse society and polity grapple with the idea of not just coexistence and diversity, but equality and citizenship. And my, the, what I try to show is that in the Arab world in particular, in the Arab East in particular, there was in fact, beginnings in the middle of the 19th century, a growing sense, an important sense, that, in, in it, that has never actually been abandoned, which is that people on the ground, people that we refer to as Muslims or Christians or Jews or Arab Christians, Arab Muslims and Arab Jews, are people who grappled with the idea of how it is that we want to organize a society, live coexistence, and try to put into effect ideas of modern coexistence, in other words, coexistence as equality or equity. And these people struggled and thought and wrote, and their archives, their legacy is evident in journals, in schools, at least in the publications of schools that we have remaining, in newspapers, in social movements, in individual recollections, in memoirs, in political parties. In other words, people struggled um, in the 19th century to think about how is it to translate ideas of coexistence into modern forms of coexistence that actually deal with equality. Because the transition um, in the Ottoman Empire, of which the Arab world was a part in the 19th century, was precisely to move from this idea of coexistence as inequality to coexistence as equality. And this was a massive shift. In the Ottoman Empire, it was a huge shift. It's also a shift, if we think, if we just broaden our imaginations and our, um, our thinking, it's also a shift and a huge challenge in the United States in the 19th century as a state that was committed, a republic that was committed to slavery and to uh, inequality. For, had to transition in the middle of the 19th century towards uh, the abolition of slavery. And this was not, as everyone here knows, not an easy process by any stretch of the imagination. And of course, the legacies we still live with today. The same could be said of India. And the same, of course, within Europe itself. And I talk about this briefly in the book with the whole emergence of uh, the emancipation of the Jews and then the rise of racial anti-Semitism. So in other words, there was all these shifts everywhere in the world, the transition of coexistence from a lived experience to coexistence as equality was in everywhere in the world, in the United States, in Europe, and in the Middle East, contested. It was never easy in any part of the world. And so that's what the book tries to show, just as a way of, of, of making the argument and insisting that when we think of the Arab world and the Middle East, we have to stop, and I'm, I'm trying to generalize here the book because I know this is not an academic audience, but um, when we think of the Middle East and we think of, of the Arab world in particular and Arabs as people, we should 
we should begin with a sense of humility and a sense of uh, and a global perspective so that we don't judge them as somehow backwards or behind us because that is simply not acceptable from a scholarly perspective or from a human perspective. Everywhere in the world in the 19th century, until our own time, as we see with, with the current president, everywhere in the world, the, the issue of equality, secular equality, is contested and is an ongoing process and is incomplete in every single society that I am aware of. There is no society in the world that's perfect or that where there isn't dissonance over the question of equality and diversity. In every society, India, the Middle East, the United States, Europe, everywhere, there is a constant struggle to figure out how to get the balance, how to achieve equality. And there's resistance to the idea of equality in every part of the world. And so there are three things, to go back to my story specifically, there are three things that, um, there are three factors that affect the story as I tell it. So let me first back up by saying the Ottoman Empire, of which the Arab world was a part, up until the 19th century was an Islamic empire which legally and ideologically privileged Muslims over non-Muslims. This was a part of the way the empire functioned. Equality was simply not an issue until the 19th century. In other words, it was not a, the inequality and equality. These are not these are those were not relevant political issues until the, the 19th century. What happens in the 19th century is that the Ottoman Empire comes under enormous European imperial pressure from the outside. It also comes under enormous internal pressure as local. Um, peoples and uh, governors rebel against Ottoman rule. And it's in this moment in the middle of the 19th century that the Ottoman Empire has to sort of promulgate these very famous laws or decrees, which basically announce the equality of all citizens. First, non-discrimination, and then eventually equality of all Ottoman subjects, irrespective of their religious affiliation. It's a hugely important moment because it because the, one of the factors of thinking about the shift of coexistence from history to the modern problem of coexistence as equality, you need law, you need sovereignty, and above all, you need people to put these into effect. So law, sovereignty, and agency. And so the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century shifts and, and so promulgates this extraordinarily important idea of equality of all Ottoman subjects, Muslims, Christians, and Jews, irrespective of their religious affiliation. Now, as I said, there was resistance to this idea. There was an embrace of this idea, and there was also resistance. And in some parts of the empire, in Damascus, in particular in Damascus, in 1860, there was a massacre that took place of Ottoman Christians. It was an unprecedented massacre in July of 1860. And... Um, Many uh, Christian subjects were killed in this massacre. It, it, it was a massive event, the largest single anti-Christian riot that took place in four centuries of Ottoman rule in Damascus. And it occurred exactly at the moment when the Ottoman Empire was shifting from the older imperial system in which discrimination was entrenched to the new system of non-discrimination and equality. 
And European observers and American observers in the middle of the 19th century looked at this moment, and we could think of what's happening in the Middle East today as a parallel. They looked at this moment and they basically said, this is typical in the Middle East, and here I'm generalizing a little bit, so bear with me. It's typical in the Middle East, Muslims can't deal with equality, this is why they attack their Christian neighbors, and this is the result is a massacre of Christians because Islam is fanatical, and so on and so forth, and they made all these claims. Now, what they didn't say is that if you think about what was happening in the United States in the 1860s, you know the history. It's not like the United States is innocent, and it's not like there wasn't racial and religious riots in the United States in the 19th century on a far larger scale, in fact, of course, than what happened in Damascus. And it's not as if European powers did not oppress in the name of religion and race in the 19th century, because they did, because they had these massive empires where equality wasn't even on the table for the vast majority of subjects. So again, it's important to bear this in mind when we think about this moment. But as far as my story is concerned, yes, there was a massacre. It was a terrible massacre. But after the massacre is the beginnings of what I call an ecumenical or anti-sectarian tradition. In other words, this man in particular, his name was Butrus al-Bustani. Don't, you don't have to worry about his name. But you do need to know is that what he did after the massacre is that he realized that people in the Ottoman Empire and in the Arab world and in Syria in particular had a choice in the wake of a massacre, a huge massacre. How does one <coughs> respond to this terrible act of inhumanity or acts of inhumanity? There's two ways he recognized. And one way was, of course, to be sectarian. In other words, to look at something and to take the worst possible interpretation and then blame the other side and then build your world in a very negative way based on the worst possible assumptions about the other with whom you share a land. In other words, to be sectarian, to withdraw into a religious or racial or ethnic boundaries and to exclude others. And he realized that this was a, a possibility. And in fact, that it was what people were doing in 1860 after this massacre. So he said his job as a humanist, as a writer, as a thinker, as a patriot, he said that the truth of the matter is that we need to create an educational system, a school system, to remind people that, in fact, there's another way, which is to say an anti-sectarian way, to emphasize the ties that bind and to emphasize what, in fact, we as human beings share in common. Because we breathe the same air, he said, uh, we speak the same language, and we live in the same country, and we share this country. And so he was among the four, uh, the, the pioneers, in a sense, of this attempt to rethink the meaning of religion in the Arab world. In other words, to take religion from being this category of coexistence, from being this, uh, this, uh, this thing that could be used to stigmatize others, into actually rethinking and reimagining religion, whether it's Islam or Christianity or Judaism, and thinking of them as equal blocks upon which you can build a common nation. So rather than thinking of it as an Islamic empire with non-Muslim subjects, he said the way to think about this is as a modern society where each of the monotheistic religions is a block upon which you build something to transcend religious difference without denying it. Hence my use of the term ecumenical. And so he opens the first such school in the Ottoman Empire called a national school. And what happens in the decades after 1860 
beginning with Bustani's work and going all, and one last thing about Bustani, if you notice that he is an Ottoman subject, you can't tell if he's Muslim or Christian. Now, of course, uh, and, and that is part of the significance. As the empire changes and adopts the non-discrimination and equality as a, as a mantra or as laws, what's interesting to note is that someone like Bustani actually came across as a, a, a pietistic but at the same time secular figure. A secular, not in the sense of being anti-religious, but as someone who actually is reinterpreting the meaning of religious in a national way. So anyway, after um, standing between 1860 and the end of the Ottoman Empire, what's amazing is how there was in the Arab East, in Syria, in, in, what is, in Lebanon, in Palestine, in Jordan, these countries didn't exist as such, in the Arab East, the Mashriq, all under Ottoman rule, what's amazing is how much diversity there was in thinking and taking modern ecumenical positions. In other words, there was a diversity of thought by people who we think of as secular or pietistic, Muslim or Christian, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, people who, who grappled and thought about how is it that we're going to organize a modern society and where do we draw the line exactly between religion and, uh, and secular rights. And, th and it was a debate, just like there's a debate in every other society. There was a massive debate, and there was tension, and there was contradiction. But my point is that there was a fundamental acceptance after 1860, between 1860 and the end of the Ottoman Empire, of the existence of the religious other as a potential compatriot. And in no other part of the Ottoman Empire, in fact, in no other part of the world, up until the First World War, was there more evidence of Muslim and non-Muslim coexistence and thriving culture of coexistence than in the Ottoman Empire and specifically in the Ottoman Arab provinces? Because Arabs shared a, shared a language, they shared an Ottoman frame, Ottoman sovereignty, and this Ottoman sovereignty was committed to the idea of non-discrimination and equality, and Arab subjects, including Bustani, but also many others, I don't have time to get into all the details, committed themselves into thinking about how to translate these noble ideals into actual practice. How you live, how you interact with your neighbors, how you salute your neighbors, how you talk to them, and so on and so forth. And so there was a thriving culture. And it's not that there was one agreement about what it means to be modern, but the point is that the idea of coexistence under an Ottoman sovereignty, a modernizing Ottoman sovereignty thrived in the Mashriq. The contrast with this is what happens in the northern parts of the empires, in the Balkans and in Anatolia. In other words, in the parts of the empire where the 19th century saw not so much a flourishing of a culture of coexistence, but the flourishing of ethno-religious nationalisms as the Greeks separated from the Ottoman Empire, to be Muslim meant to be a problem. And so Muslims were basically forced out, uh, directly and indirectly, of the emerging Greek state. The same story happens across the Balkans, in Bulgaria, in what would become Bulgaria, in what becomes Serbia, you know, and so on and so forth. There's this, the rise of ethno-religious nationalisms as Muslim subjects are forced out of the, um, of the um, northern parts of the empire. Um, and then in response to that, or in relationship to that, 
Turkish nationalism develops, which excludes Christians. And so it's not a surprise that the Armenian question, you've all, you've all heard of the Armenian question, and then eventually the Armenian genocide of 1915 takes place in, towards the end of the empire, precisely as a result of these new problems of nationalism and ethno-religious nationalism, which marked people hitherto who had been living together as different, fundamentally different. And if you're in the wrong religion, you don't fit. So this is what was happening in the northern part of the empire. Whereas in the southern part of the empire, in the Mashriq, um, down here, off the map, down here in what is today Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, and so on and so forth, in that area, there was no nationalism. There was no desire to separate from the Ottoman Empire, and there was, in fact, a thriving culture of coexistence. And so what I'm trying to get you to think about is to understand that one empire bifurcated between the north and the south. The northern part of the empire, in other words, what is today the Balkans and Turkey, was consumed by the problem of nationalism and ethno-religious nationalism, which separated Muslim from Christian. In the Arab East, there was no nationalism to speak of. There was people thriving and living and contesting. They couldn't agree this idea of coexistence. And so, so in other words, there were structural conditions and there was local agency. So that, that's what the book sort of argues up until the First World War, which is why in 1919, again, I'm skipping over a lot of history here, but let me end soon. In 1919, when you see, for example, in Egypt, Muslims and Christians coming together to protest British occupation of Egypt. The fact that Muslims and Christians come together, you know, the cross and the crescent come together in 1919 is itself part of this history. It's not that, this, that it's something that's inevitable, it's something that happens as a result of a historical experience. The fact that a, a Coptic priest goes to the great Muslim seminary of Al-Azhar in Cairo and preaches anti-colonialism from this famous Islamic seminary in 1919 is again a testament to the emergence of this ecumenical form of coexistence, or what I call the ecumenical frame. The fact that Palestinian Muslims and Christians actually work together is a function, again, of this moment. And so my point is that this was a, a, a great moment of optimism, in a sense, in 1919. The problem was that, and the, the second half of the book deals with this, but I'm not going to, I'm going to stop in, in, a, in a one minute. Um, the problem is that, as I said, sovereignty had been Ottoman. The Ottoman state was committed, at least in law and in, pra in theory, if not always in practice, towards the abolition of discrimination and the the um, the uh, um, the promulgation of equality. What happens after uh, World War I, when the Ottomans are defeated, is that the Europeans come in. And European colonialism transforms the Middle East in several different ways, all of which have a huge effect on the story of coexistence that I've been trying to tell you. First of all, the Europeans divide up this region. And they divide up this region not because the interests of people in the region dictated or mandated that they should be divided, but because the European powers, Britain and France in particular, wanted to divide this region for their own colonial interests. That's the first thing. Second of all, unlike the Ottoman state, which, which practiced or preached one Ottoman citizenship, even if the practice was 
completely at odds, especially in the Balkans and in Anatolia, as far as the Armenians were concerned. The Europeans come in, and they never preach, of course, citizenship, because the Europeans are never offering citizenship. They're there to rule people. Um, and the Europeans divide up the region into various states. We live with this legacy until today, which massively complicates the story of coexistence, because then each of these states ha and the people living in these states have to figure out how they relate to one another in the context of a European divide and rule. And third, as you can see from this picture, this is a famous picture from Lebanon, which was a state created by the French in 1920. The European generals and rulers basically made themselves their justification for the last colonialism in the world. And this was the last place in the world that was colonized, or one of the last places in the world to be colonized, and we should bear that in mind. The Europeans, here's a European general right there, the French general, Gouraud, who was uh, the architect, in a sense, of the separation of Lebanon from Syria. He makes himself, if you look at the picture, where is he sitting? He's sitting exactly in the middle, between the Christian and the Muslim. You can't tell who's whom, but the point is, but he's there in the middle. And the idea that the Europeans came in with is that the argument that they came in with is that these people in the East will basically kill each other because of their sectarianism if we, the Europeans, the quote, civilized Europeans, don't intervene and keep them uh, apart from one another. In other words, without us, the Europeans, these people are going to be involved in sectarian war, which of course ignores the fact that the history I just told you about occurred, be that France has its own extraordinary history of racial and religious violence, and see uh, the Europeans use this colonial pluralism as a way of justifying their own presence in the region. And so this massively complicates, as I said, the history of coexistence. And the last two, and the, here's a picture of uh, Faisal, the king of Iraq. And again, you see, it's a, it's a, it's a great picture because, of course, who's standing right here near him is a British general. And yet again, you have, you know, this idea of the British or the French, depending on which mandate we're talking about, making themselves indispensable to the idea of, of progress and development, all of which distorts the history of the region in the 20th century and disturbs the ecumenical frame. And um, the last thing I'll say, I mean, as I said, in, in the Middle East, after the Ottomans were defeated, People, Arabs, for the first time had a choice to figure out because for the first time they were nominally ruling their countries, although of course it was the British and the French who actually ruled. But they were tasked with the idea of how do you want to create your, 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 your new political systems. And there was a debate. Some people opted for what we call secular nationalism, which ignores religious difference entirely and suppresses it. The man on, the right, on your left and the man on the right in Lebanon actually creates a, the, the sectarian political system that exists until Lebanon today, which divides politics along religious or sectarian lines. Both those were, were presented as, as um, conflicting or contrasting ideas about how to move forward in the post-Ottoman era, but my point is that both of these emerge from the common Ottoman soil. What doesn't emerge from the common Ottoman soil and this is, a, this is perhaps controversial for some people, although it should, it's not to historians anymore, was uh, colonial Zionism, or Zionism, in other words, the idea of a Jewish state, which uh, came from Europe, 
and its main ideologues and thinkers came from Europe, and they had no experience of the Ottoman past, and they were thinking and grappling with European problems of anti-Semitism and nationalism, and their solution was to create a Jewish state in Palestine. This is especially after 1897. And so they, they take this, if I'm going to be you know, as neutral as you want, they take this European idea and they translate it into the Middle East. And what they do, in effect, is precipitate an absolutely new conflict between Arab and Jew, uh, just at the moment when the Arab East had appeared to be grappling successfully with the question of Muslim and non-Muslim. In other words, in the Ottoman period, the great question was Muslim and non-Muslim, which in the Arab East appeared to be heading to sort of some kind of, uh, of equilibrium. And then on top of that, a new conflict emerges in Palestine over the question of Zionism, which ultimately leads not only to the dispossession of the Palestinians in 1948 and what we call the Arab-Israeli conflict, but also the beginnings of the end of being an Arab Jew. So Arab Jewish communities in Iraq, for instance, um, are forced out of Baghdad in the 1950s, the early 1950s. And rather than seeing one and saying one is, you know, the idea is to think of them both as a common uh, tragedy uh, precipitated by this European colonial partition of the region uh, whose legacy we still live with today. So that's, in a nutshell, what the book tries to argue. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Thank you, Dr. Magdisi, for your comments. Uh, now it's time for the question and answer period. I'm Eddie Simonian, today's moderator. So we have many questions. Let's begin. Uh, I'm going to start it off with a, let's say, an easy question or yep. something at least light. Um, okay. Do you want to speak a bit about the Hagia Sophia and the history around it? Uh, the Hagia the Sophia. I mean, again, that's part of the, you're talking about Istanbul. Mm-hmm. Constantinople, Istanbul. I mean, that is again part of. I mean, obviously, a great monument, um, uh, uh, one of the most extraordinary monuments in the world. Um, a museum today it was a mosque, had been, of course, before that, a Christian uh, Byzantine uh, uh, site, like a, a testament to the very long history of coexistence um, in in the in the Middle East. But of course. Having said that, you have to acknowledge, one has to acknowledge right away that there's a profound difference between saying coexistence, which means living together, and actually saying coexistence as equality. These are two separate things. People live together in all sorts of ways and conditions. That doesn't mean that it is about equality, which is why my book is really focused on the modern period. Thank you, Professor. So uh, I have a question over here, which uh, I know you answered it in your book, but how do you define Arab? 
um, you can define Arab in many different ways. The way I define Arab um, and the way I would say the, uh, the, almost all the Arabs who I, I know who think uh, along similar lines, you, you define it in the most ecumenical and the most capacious manner. In other words, those who identify themselves as Arab are Arab. It's not a racial identity. It's a question of how you affiliate and your relationship to Arabic, the language, but also the identity, which is in the end. So that's, that's the way I would define that. There's no scientific definition per se. I know in Lebanon that's actually a big uh, issue with some Christians refusing to be identified as Arabs and claiming... Yeah, that's a good point you're raising. They're Phoenician. That's a good, they're yeah, Phoenician, for sure. So because, uh, but that's exactly the point. Mm -hmm. That is exactly the point, that all these identities are questions of affiliation. In other words, we're all born, we have no choice as to where we're born <laughs> or to whom we are born, but we do have a choice as to how we affiliate with these, these aspects. In other words, you're saying in Lebanon, some people say they're not Arab, they're Phoenician. Well, that's a choice. That's not a, it's not like it's science. And there's certainly nothing called Phoenicianism today or you, anyone. <laughs> nobody can trace their origins back to Phoenicia. That's a complete myth. But the fact that my point is not to say, I don't, I don't want to dismiss and say, oh, they're, they're, it's absurd that people say they're Phoenician. My point is that the, 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 we should be attentive to the fact and remember that the true history lies in when was it a choice that people had to make between choosing, between identifying themselves as an Arab Christian or as a Phoenician. But the point is there was a choice to be made. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people chose to be Arab Christians. And there is nothing more, in a sense, beautiful than a capacious understanding of what it means to be Arab that includes Muslims, Christians, and Jews. That's my point. Now, of course, there are other people who say, no, we don't identify like that at all. We are X or Y. That's fine. That's not, I'm not saying it's fine. What I'm saying is that that's the job of, of, that's the story we're trying to tell. Where and at what point did these, did these identities become salient and important, and why was it that certain choices were made, and under what conditions? And what was the role of the Ottomans, of the Europeans, and of the people on the ground? From that, I want to venture into a question. It's, it's a political question, and it's about... Uh, how do you evaluate the new government in Lebanon and its uh, support by Hezbollah and your, your thoughts on the effect of the people protesting on the streets right now? Okay, so my book is actually a history book, and I don't actually, I don't actually deal with uh, uh, the contemporary Lebanese crisis, but I will say, insofar as I've been asked, and just like anyone here who knows Lebanon or cares about the country, Clearly, there's a catastrophe. Um, clearly, there's a financial and economic and political and human uh, catastrophe um, engineered by extraordinary greed and corruption. And, you know, it, people are suffering in Lebanon, and um, that's, that's what's happening now. The question of whether people are going to be able to overturn the, the, the corruption there, it's like asking, are people going to be able to overturn the corruption in this country? Who knows? But it's an open struggle. This, uh, so this question is about, uh, do you think Gertrude Bell's expedition is one of the problems with how the Middle East was finally divided? I think the European, I think the European, the British and French partition of the Ottoman Empire, of the Arab provinces, has played a massive role in shaping 
the contemporary, the modern history of the region. There's no doubt about that. It's the Europeans who, to go back to this map here, it's the Europeans in the end who, um, who create the modern Arab states in the way that they're created. It's the Europeans who, uh, the British who introduced Zionism into Palestine as a political project. Um, it's the Europeans who insist that they have the key to development and that they are the, the, the indispensable um, master, uh, including in, in Gertrude Bell or, or T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, or any of the British or French colonial administrators. They had this extraordinarily arrogant view, which, of course, American uh, administrators in, in the Middle East today have, which is that somehow they are superior and they know better and they are more advanced and that they have the right to divide up peoples uh, around the world, and we live with those consequences. Going off that, but w one of the things uh, that I've always heard was also the influence of <coughs> the Christian community in lobbying France to get what they want in Lebanon, to expand Mount Lebanon, to yeah. get more influence and more power. Mm -hmm. So isn't also a, you know, a double-sided scenario in which also some communities within the Middle East wanted to use foreign powers for their own yes influence. but i would uh, you know again i would like immediately tell you look the scholar tells you don't use the word community in the way you're using it you're talking about the christian communities as if there's one community and as if there's one christian community the truth of the matter is that christians were divided and there were some who supported french colonialism and there were others who opposed it bitterly and not bitterly in a negative way, but in a, actively, in other words. So the point is, this is where I go. And the same thing with, with Jews and Zionism. There were some who rejected Zionism because they said Zionism does not represent us as Jews, especially people in the, in the East. Remember, Zionism did not emerge from the historical experience of Jewish communities in the Middle East. It emerged in Europe in response to European questions and European problems and European racism. And then it was taken to a place where there already were Jewish communities. And I think that's important to realize. It's not, and the same thing for Muslims. There's no single Muslim or Jewish or Christian response. But there are questions of affiliation. How do you affiliate with the political world and the choices you have to make? And that's what I try to emphasize in the book over and over again. So it's really important, but, but thanks for that question, to stop thinking of a Christian singular position. There is no such thing. And there is no, don't talk about community as one thing. There are communities and within each community, there's always a struggle to define what does it mean to be, for example, a Maronite Christian or an Armenian Christian? And how do we relate to our Muslim neighbors and so on and so forth? So that's what I, I urge people to think about. We'd like to remind our listening audiences that this is a Commonwealth Club program called Age of Coexistence. Our speaker is Dr. Usama Mugdesi, visiting professor at UC Berkeley and author of Age of Coexistence, The Ecumenical Frame and the Making of the Arab World. Yeah, we should also add, by the way, I'm a professor at Rice University. Professor at... <laughs> and I've been at Rice for 20 years. Professor at <laughs> Rice. Yeah. I'll add that in the next uh, yeah, segment. <laughs> so, so this is about the 1860 massacre in Syria. Why, why is it not spoken about more? Why are there not more books about it? Is, is there a reason uh, you, know, you have to dig deep to actually yeah, learn about question. it? Yeah, that's a question. Well, there are, there are books about it in English. I mean, there are scholars who have written about it in English. Um, um, they're not 
generally speaking, they're not really very good books, but um, a lot of them are Orientalist in the sense of like sensationalizing the massacres as if it's a peculiarly Muslim problem with modernity when, as I've said, the entire world faces these kinds of questions in the 19th century, um, as we know from, you know, the fact that in California in 1862, I think, if I'm not wrong, I check this fact, but the California Supreme Court, I think, upheld a ruling that said that um, non-whites cannot testify against whites. I mean, there was a whole racial sort of program in California. So the, in other words, the world is incredibly, um, like the idea of equality is, is everywhere contested. But as to why this massacre has not had... Um, like a serious proper history in Arabic, I think in part is one answer is because people are embarrassed by it. And um, the second answer is that people don't know about it because, no, I mean, this is, we're talking about now quite a long time ago. And third, people who do know about it don't know how to narrate this history because they're afraid that if we focus on the internal divisions, for example, in Syria, then they feel that people outside Syria who have an ill will towards the Syrians will exploit this to further divide the Syrians who already, as we know today, face extraordinary mm -hmm. uh, problems uh, and catastrophes. And so I think that, that those are some of the reasons. In other words, denial is often a way, denial, uh, I'm not, of course, I'm not advocating denial in any way. I'm actually, the whole point of my book is to say, let's look into these things and examine these things, but let's not think of these moments as the moments that define us entirely. In fact, think about the response to these moments and how people responded to actually build something quite powerful and humane. Going off of that, what uh, what effects did these massacres have on the Jews living in the Ottoman Empire? Well, it's interesting. The, 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 uh, the Jews were not actually attacked at all in 1860. Um, and it's important to note, again, the Jewish communities in the Ottoman Empire did not face and were never made the same kind of exception that Jewish communities in Eastern Europe, in Russia, and in Western Europe were made. In other words, the great problem of the Ottomans and in the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century, most people don't know this, was not about Jewish versus Arab, as I said, or Jewish versus non-Jewish. That wasn't the issue. The issue was really Muslim, non-Muslim. And that's why the Armenian question and the Armenian troubles, quote-unquote, and then the Armenian massacres and the genocide is what really is, is one of the defining features of, of the uh, late 19th century Ottoman Empire. So in other words, it wasn't about Jews. That wasn't the issue. The issue really was um, about um, how does the empire as a whole transition from being an, em an Islamic empire to being an empire of citizens. And that was the huge challenge that the Ottomans faced, in which, of course, Jews and Christians and Muslims were all implicated, but the main opposition were the Balkan Christians and the Armenians to the Ottoman state policies. I, uh, I understand the book is about history, but a lot of the questions we got is about the situation in the Middle East, mainly. Sure, about, go ahead. Shoot. About, <laughs> ask and I'll try to answer. <laughs> about Israel. Yeah. And uh, maybe I'll, I'll ask it in a more historic, well, in, in two frames, but okay. the, the first frame is more of Trump and Kushner. What's your thoughts on how they're handling? I think it's catastrophic. I don't think, I, I don't think anyone, you know, honestly, no person with a humane sensibility or, or any understanding of history of this region 
that I'm aware of will ever say anything but that the Trump Kushner plan is a travesty. Honestly, it's uh, and and let's just leave it at that. I mean, <laughs> I can elaborate, but basically, yeah. when equality, when the problem is equality, you know you have a problem. That's what I'll say. Well, I'm gonna kind of push it a bit more on here, uh, but the question is, and I know we discussed this a bit earlier: two-state solution, one-state solution. Where and and l maybe if you could say it in a more um, academic uh, sense like w w what is the most feasible solution to the scenario over there i don't i don't think there's a i mean clearly you can tell i mean again you just asked me about kushner and jared kushner and trump and the sort of attempt to bully the palestinians into submission and surrender and the kind of the hostility and the ignorance uh, and the racism uh, manifested um, and arrogance manifested towards people who are suffering, uh, the issue really is not a question of, I mean, so solutions are all pipe dreams, like there's no solution. What mm -hmm. there is, is a reality on the ground um, and, and, and a terrible reality on the ground. The question is, what is our, each of us as individuals, what is our ethical position vis-a-vis -a, -vis a moral and political c catastrophe that is taking place that affects, of course, Palestinians in the first degree because they are the weakest mm -hmm. and the most, uh, um, oppressed of the groups in, in there, but also that affects Jews and affects everyone else in the region who also is implicated in this, in this question. So it's, it's really a general question for everybody to think about. But of course, one hopes, uh, you know, and I've written about this in some other works, like many other people, one hopes for equality and justice and peace. But, you know, the question really is, can you do that while oppressing the Palestinians? And the answer is no. Thank you, doctor. Um, I do have a question to go back to your book. Uh, and the question is more of uh, Jamal Abdel Nasser mm -hmm. and his pan-Arab uh, nationalism. Mm -hmm. Was this uh, kind of similar to what I was talking about? Was during the Ottoman time, yes. Yeah, it's an extension. It's not similar in the sense that... So the, the epilogue of the book deals with the, the post-1948 Arab world, and you can think of Nasser in two ways. One way, the project of Arab or Egyptian and then Arab nationalism was at one level inclusive insofar as it, again, it's sort of the idea is that Coptic Christians are part of this project and part of this nationalism and that they refuse to think of themselves as a minority but as Egyptians. So that's part of that history. And on the other hand, what the book ends with is this idea that just because you're anti-sectarian doesn't mean you can't abuse the idea of anti-sectarianism. You can be an authoritarian figure who uses anti-sectarianism to justify your control and your domination of people. And what happens um, with Nasser, but then actually far worse after Nasser, including the contemporary Middle East in Iraq and in Syria and in Egypt today, there is, you know, people, politicians and, and rulers consistently abuse the idea of being against sectarianism to entrench their personal power. My uh, moving uh, to the next question, it's more about Iran as well and its relationship uh, and the effects of the Ottoman Empire on that and mm -hmm. the Sunni-Shia divide. Did that arise also uh, afterwards? Uh, how Was there a lot of tension during that time? Yeah, what, what I would say is like that's a good question. I mean, my book is not about Iran, so I want to be clear. So this yeah. is beyond my, sort of my, um, beyond the book's scope. But again, thinking about 
Iranian Ottoman or Persian Ottoman or Safavid Ottoman tensions. These were this was an imperial rivalry in which each empire mobilized religion, used religion and religious difference to consolidate its power, to stigmatize opponents and to consolidate power. And so it's important for us to bear in mind that when we talk about Sunni Shia, you have to also historicize that. And by historicize, what I mean is put it in context. Don't think of Sunni and Shia being one thing, stable things that don't change over time, because that's not how history works. History is all about change and dynamism and people constantly rethinking what does it mean to be Sunni, what does it mean to be Shia. Mm -hmm. So that's my answer to that. And uh, so uh, I know you have this in your book, but one of the questions we have, didn't the Ottoman Empire have something called the Millet system? If so, how does this fit in with your story? It does fit. I mean, there was something called the Millet system um, in the Ottoman Empire, although, again, historians and scholars debate to you know when that term you know, uh, came into being and what does it mean. But essentially, the Ottomans did have a system where they recognized the Ottoman Muslim sultans, recognized... Armenian, Jewish, and Greek, the Orthodox uh, communities, um, as part of the imperial structure. So they gave them autonomy in terms of the religious beliefs and their cultural modes uh, in return for submission to Ottoman power. And that, that's, in essence, what the Millet system refers to. So, yes, there was a history of coexistence, but that's not equality. That's an imperial form of coexistence where the ruler basically dispenses, tolerates the existence of others, but not in a condition of equality. It's inequality, but it was coexistence. And it also changed over time. A question I do have, and it's looking at this and looking at the history of the region, and whether it's right now, whether it's before, we're always going to have these groups, uh, whatever we want to call them, communities, groups, that are going to want to find the other that person that they differentiate themselves from and that maybe they want to, you know, the oppressed wants to be the oppressor, et cetera, a scenario. Looking at the region right now and looking at the way it was, it, it is, uh, do you have any, like, what's your opinion? Well, on? Do you have hope? I, I, again, my, well, that's the whole reason I wrote the book is to tell you that, yes, it, there is a long history and there always is, as you say, a history of stigmatizing others. But there's also a history of identifying with others, you know, and, and it's not like there's one history that predominates and there's one. It's not true to say that all communities do X, because the whole point of every community is that people have choice and communities are dynamic places where some people, yes, and maybe in certain moments, a majority of people stigmatize others. So, I mean, and the way I'd respond to that is thinking about the United States today. Trump and the people around Trump, you know, may have the, the, the most negative and xenophobic interpretation of what it means to be American. But there are other Americans who have a much more generous uh, and a much more noble way of thinking about being American. And so um, does that, that. So my point is that that doesn't mean that we should ignore the fact that there is racism and that there are structures of economic and political uh, power. That, that answer these questions, that we should always be attentive to these things, but, but realize that people in the Middle East have a profound history of coexistence, as I said, both old coexistence, but also the more modern form that I talk about in my book, and an anti-sectarian sensibility. In other words, an awareness that 
there is always a temptation to divide and to, um, to, to emphasize the worst aspects of culture and of, and of thought. And you have to be attentive to that and fight against that, just as you have to be in this country. Mm -hmm. That's my point. I mean, I think if we just bear that in mind, I think we're able to talk about the Middle East without looking down on the people in the Arab world and actually learn from a profound place. Doctor, I would like to give you, if you want, any final notes to say anything positive. Or I just did. That's, uh, that's that? <laughs> I just right. did. History is all, you know, there's no such thing as a single line in history. There, is, there are always choices to be made, and there are different paths that could have been taken, which means that uh, it doesn't mean that the paths that were not taken were doomed you know, to failure. It just means that at a particular point in time, factors uh, allowed for one path to be taken as opposed to another. But my point is emphasize, emphasize the humane and the, and the, uh, the dynamic, not the static and age-old notions of a, of a sectarian Middle East. Thank you. Thanks again to Dr. Usama Magdisi, today's distinguished speaker, for his excellent presentation. We also thank our audiences here, those listening to the recording and on the Internet. I'm Eddie Simonian, your moderator for today's program, Age of Coexistence. Now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating over 115 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned.